0: Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity titled Collaborative Consult, Cases, Patient Reflection, and Discussions. What's new in pediatric atopic dermatitis is brought to you by Integrity Continuing Education, Incorporated and supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives.
1: Welcome to this presentation titled Collaborative Consult, Cases, Patient Reflection, and Discussions. We're going to look today at what's new in atopic dermatitis. I'm Dr. Tony Mancini. I'm a pediatric dermatologist in Chicago at Lurie Children's Hospital and Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Here are my disclosures. The learning objectives today are going to be to describe the immunopathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. We're going to summarize some current clinical trials data on the safety and efficacy of newer and emerging therapies for this disorder and look at applying evidence based guideline recommendations for the treatment of patients with pediatric atopic dermatitis. It's important that we look at these newer therapies and newer observations in terms of the pathophysiology of the disease as we begin to understand the availability of all these new targeted therapies that are now uh, becoming available to those of us who care for these patients. And I wanna make a note that the focus of this activity is really pediatric patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. In any discussion of atopic dermatitis and its treatment, it's really important that we always consider the burden of disease, and this is really significant for patients with atopic dermatitis, and not just the pediatric patient, but their family as well, so it's important that we always consider things like itch, the itch-scratch cycle, the effects on sleep, the increased incidence of co-sleeping for younger children with moderate to severe disease, uh, and the impact on not just the patient. Uh, their schooling, their socialization, but also on the entire family unit, parent work performance, work attendance. Uh, There are many factors which we need to incorporate as we decide which treatments might be most appropriate for that patient.
2: So in the very beginning, I mean, he was a baby. He He had one of
3: those doc bands when he was an infant and I think that was the first time we started realizing that he had some skin sensitivities. It may not have been fully um, identified at that point. It wasn't until he probably was around the age of like um, one and a half, two. He really s- started breaking out, and that was also when we saw a lot of his environmental allergies getting worse. So. I would say that that really was a trigger. We started seeing a pediatric dermatologist at that point. um, And they really started a lot of the topical um, ointments and such to his skin. Um, And and that was really where our, our starting point um, began. But I would say three was really our turning point where we were like, Oh my gosh, we have to, we have to do something. Um, Because quite frankly, it,
2: it was awful watching him go through what he, what he had, what, what he was going through at that time. I mean, early on, I think it, it had to have disrupted
3: him a little bit with development wise. And I say that because, you know, again, thinking back to when he was three and I would catch him in corners scratching. Um, And, and, you know, when you have like, Toddlers, you know, you know, they're being curious, you know, that they're exploring. There was a period where, you know, he was young and I, I would say that it was consuming. Um, and when he's had bad instances, you know, when he has bad reactions, you know, it, it's, it is awful to watch your kid go through it. It was awful walking into a room that the bed sheets would be covered in blood it was awful to, you know, where you're, they're sleep deprived, you're sleep deprived, um, you're trying to help them at three o'clock in the morning, soothe them, but you're feeling awful that your, your baby, you know, is going through
2: this. Um, you know, and I would say that that was like, those were the worst days. From a work perspective for us, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily
3: come into so much with work, but there's always that fear. There's always that worry, you know, especially no different than when you have a newborn, you're not getting sleep. Um, or there's something that's going on. I mean, this is, this is a disease. This is something medical. And so it is always on your mind. And you're always worried about the fact that, you know, he's able to be, normal and successful and happy and fit in with everybody else. Um, and, and I would say that it, there have been instances in time that he wasn't, but as he's gotten older and as we've
2: figured out how to use the tools in the toolbox, he's actually started to move into more of that normalcy.
4: Yeah, so sometimes I would, I would really want to go to sleepovers and I couldn't because I had to do medicine or if they had a dog, because I, dogs are one of the things that make me itch. So if they had a dog, I couldn't go to their house and have a sleepover with them.
2: Yeah,
3: I would say that that's a big thing is that, you know, what, what kid doesn't want to (laughs) go and have a sleepover, go to a birthday party or go somewhere Um, and, and they don't really want mom to come at 830, nine o'clock and say, okay, now it's time for your bath and (laughs) put on your lotion, you know?
1: So let's take a minute and look at the immunopathogenesis of atopic dermatitis. And many of you have probably seen these diagrams. This is a very busy slide, but I'm going to walk through it a little bit just to highlight what's going on at the molecular level. So uh, if you look at the top of the slide, the epidermal barrier resides here in the epidermis. And it's really important to understand that patients with atopic dermatitis and atopic diathesis have a variety of defects, including a decrease in filagrin, a really key protein of which the breakdown products actually help moisturize and, and keep the epidermal barrier uh, functioning. Uh, loracrine, involucrin, and really importantly, lipids. Remember that lipids are a really important vital component of the epidermal barrier. Uh, They are the mortar when you think about the epidermis as a bricks and mortar model, and the most important uh, lipid is ceramide, and you hear a lot about ceramides or that sera stem with products that are both over-the-counter and prescription. That's a big part of the disease. But then let's look down into the dermis, what's going on at the molecular level. And you can see here, if we look in the middle of this slide, we're looking at the acute stage of atopic dermatitis. You see it's really a TH2-driven process with the cytokine profile you'd expect for a TH2-driven disease. So interleukin-4, interleukin-13 play a key role, but also other interleukins like interleukin-22, which has effects on epidermal hyperplasia and differentiation. interleukin-31, which really seems to have a predominant uh, association with itch. Um, And then you notice that Th1 does show up here, but it's very small because it doesn't play as much of a role, at least it's believed, in the acute stages, but may play more of a role if you look over here on the far right in the chronic phases of atopic dermatitis. So it's really a combination of these Outside in epidermal barrier defects, as well as the inside out uh, the inflammatory pathways that combine and contribute to the pathogenesis of this disease. And as many of you will recognize a lot of these uh, cytokines uh, are newly identified targets for our targeted therapies. The study was nice in that it looked at the various phenotypes of atopic dermatitis. Many of us were taught in our training that this is a disease that shows up during infancy and goes away during the early school age years. And now we know that while that's true for a a lot of patients, it's not true for everyone and there are multiple different phenotypes. And if you look at this diagram, it really shows the onset in terms of age of the patient uh, and when it may or may not uh, go away or resolve. A few things to highlight, uh, this study found, if you look at the curve in yellow, that, that that early onset, early resolving type was most likely to be associated with the male sex. At the top, in red and light blue, these are the early onset forms, early onset persisting and early onset late resolving that seems to have more of a genetic uh, association. And then in purple was a as-of-yet unrecognized subtype of atopic dermatitis, which is a mid onset resolving type. And this type seemed to have less of an association with filaggrin mutations, but a strong association with reactive airways disease. So it's important that we understand these pathophysiologic bases for atopic dermatitis as we begin to hear more and more about clinical trials data and newer agents that are being launched and approved by the FDA. There are some challenges occasionally in the management of atopic dermatitis in children. So Sometimes the diagnosis may be in question. It may not be as clear-cut as it is in many patients. There is a differential diagnosis for atopic derm, although to most dermatologists, this is a fairly straightforward diagnosis. There can be features that really overlap though with other conditions. In terms of treatment, we may not, we really don't have the perfectly ideal medication. Uh, we have to consider things like the administration route, uh, access to medications, compliance or adherence with therapies, concerns on the parts of patients about allergies or side effect concerns that may or may not be relevant. And there may be a failure to align treatment with guidelines. Remember that we do have many treatment guidelines for atopic dermatitis, but some of them are now becoming a little bit dated and may not include many of these newer agents that are being approved. There's also occasionally inappropriate use of certain regimens. For instance, systemic corticosteroids are still overutilized. We all know that those are really limited by their long-term toxicity risks, and also by the fact that patients, once they go off of systemic steroids, often tend to have rebound flares in their disease. In one study of treatment patterns, systemic corticosteroids were the most commonly prescribed so-called advanced therapy being used in three out of four patients. And in that study, only about 10% of patients were being prescribed dupilumab, despite it being in the uh, guidelines that are published to date, recommended as the next step for moderate to severe disease. What are the limitations of our current options for treatment for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis? Well, on the far left, if you look at systemic immunosuppressants, things like methotrexate, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, or azathioprine, uh, there are a lot of limitations. Treatment is off-label for all of these except for systemic corticosteroids. Most of them are really not ideal for long-term use, given their long-term risks and potential toxicities. And again, we talked about an over-reliance in some areas uh, on the use of systemic corticosteroids phototherapy in the middle. Here we're talking predominantly about narrowband ultraviolet B phototherapy, which can be very effective, but may be limited by the fact that at least in children, it's really limited to use in patients 12 years of age, around that age and older. It can be really difficult for families to get into a a dermatology clinic where they have access to light therapy. There are home light boxes available, uh, but those of us in dermatology know that those aren't always as effective and also they're not always covered and they're very expensive. There's issues with cost with travel to sites to receive your light therapy. And remember, this is a controlled form of tanning, so there is a low risk uh, for elevated uh, incidence of cutaneous malignancies or even eye toxicities. In the far right panel, topical corticosteroids, um, overall still standard of care for the treatment of atopic dermatitis, especially mild to moderate disease. But they can be uh, associated with some toxicities and some risks, especially if they're used inappropriately, uh, for instance, too long, too potent, or in the wrong locations. Uh, a classic example being a more potent product being used in an occluded area, like the diaper area of a child. Fortunately, atopic dermatitis doesn't occur there, so that's not too relevant to this discussion. But if they're used in other areas where there's increased absorption, like the axillary regions, um, you could see more systemic uh, risks.
2: Every couple years, Like we get a kind of a handle on it and then something changes. Um,
3: So I would say, you know, three, we got him under control, maybe five. There was something else that would happen, you know, and, and he would, you know, he went through a period where he was getting skin infections quite frequently and would be hospitalized for them. It wasn't until he was probably around eight, nine, um, I would say that's really where we started to see more changes. Um, he does more competitive sports um, and you know the equipment for shin guards or the equipment for baseball or the, or the things that you have to wear, um, the materials, the, things are a little bit different. He's a, he's a boy who wants to participate in that. So I would say that we've kind of come into ebbs and flows where things get under control. And then it and then it's not under control. And then we have to,
2: you know, regroup, figure out what our game plan is, attack it, and then move forward again. We have a toolbox here now, you know, that is whenever he has a reaction or we ever we have something,
3: you know, we have the tools in our toolbox, depending on the severity. How how do we jump in and and manage it? It's hard as a parent because you really have to be dedicated and focused on doing these things. And, and so that partnership with, with the spouse, um, you know,
2: where there's a lot of communication that goes into play now. It's not just about bills. It's about whether or not you bathe the kid. He's always had some sort of topical solution with some sort of
3: either cream or ointment, depending on the seasonality, because uh, we found that lotions are better in the summer for things, whereas winter, you know, things like an aquaphor or something like that, um, more jelly-based, you know, they're sticky and you don't want that in in the summer. Um, so you you kind of are always experimenting to kind of figure out Um, what is gonna be working at a certain time. And like I said, things were changing. He's had, what is it? The tar wraps, he's had wet wraps, which you could probably tie. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't a fan of the wet wraps. Um, you know, I mean, there's there's been a number of things. And I would say in the beginning, sometimes it was easier because he's, he is little and, and you could make a game out of something. As he's gotten older, it's gotten harder in some ways because he wants to be responsible for this. Um, he wants to have more control over what goes on and and he doesn't want to take the time out from the video games or take time out from his friends or even stop watching a movie to go take a bath or to go do stuff. And and now that he is, you know, that fourth, fifth grade, it's really important for him, you know, to,
2: to be clean.
1: So in patients who have moderate to severe disease, it's important to realize that they're, they're seeking care, they're hearing about newer therapies that are evolving. So it's really important that we are very familiar with the clinical trials data, uh, with the FDA approval process, uh, and with the various agents that are becoming approved for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. And being open-minded to using these new agents is really important for all of us to really help our patients in battling this disease when they're not responding maybe to standard therapies. So what are some of the more recently approved therapies for atopic dermatitis? This chart summarizes them as of uh, this point in time. Remember, this is a moving target, and uh, weekly and monthly, we're hearing about newer approvals and newer clinical trials. Chrysoborol, a topical PDE4 inhibitor approved for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis in patients three months of age and older. Uh, This expanded approval came down in March of 2020, and it had been approved several years prior uh, for patients down to two years of age. Release showing promise as a steroid-sparing agent, I think it's still finding its niche uh, in terms of where it fits in. Uh, There can be some burning with application, and we have to always consider, of course, cost access. Dupiligamab, an inhibitor of both interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 by its inhibitory effect on an interleukin-4 alpha receptor. This is approved for moderate to severe topical dermatitis in patients six months of age and older. That uh, indication down to six months of age just came uh, down in the last month or so. Uh, in March of 2017, it was pr- approved down to 12 years of age with an expanded approval down to six years of age in 2021. So it is administered by injection, which may be a, an important consideration for some patients and families. And again, we have to consider cost and access issues. Ruxolitinib, a topical agent, uh, which is a JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitor, approved for mild to moderate topic dermatitis in patients down to the age of 12 years. It was approved in September of last year. Um, now, if you look at the package label, there is a box warning because the class of JAK inhibitors has a black box uh, warning. Uh, so there uh, may be a higher risk for serious adverse events, but most feel that the topical, with the topical uh, delivery of JAK inhibitors, that risk is far, far lower. And then the first oral JAK inhibitor uh, approved in children for uh, atopic dermatitis is upatacitinib. Uh, this is an oral uh, JAK1 inhibitor approved for moderate to severe disease in patients down to 12 years of age. And it was approved in January of this year for that indication. Again, as I mentioned, the, as a class, the jack inhibitors do have a box warning with a higher uh, concern level for serious risk profile, so that always needs to be addressed with the families, uh, as we discuss with shared decision-making, risk versus benefit, uh, and again, cost and access issues will always uh, be relevant for these newer agents. Let's look at some of those clinical trials data and I'm just gonna summarize some of the most relevant studies. Here's the pivotal uh, trials data for chrysoboral, topical chrysoboral, the AD301 and AD302 studies. You can see Chrysoboral in blue and the vehicle in green and we're looking here at the percent of patients who achieved uh, that, uh, that goal of an IGA score. That's the investigators global assessment of zero or one that's clear or almost clear and had a two grade improvement. Remember that's a five point scale, clear, almost clear, mild, moderate, and severe disease. So you had to jump two levels uh, or achieve and achieve a score of zero to one. And you can see the chrysoboral was statistically superior to vehicle in both of those studies. Shifting over to dupilumab, this is the trials in uh, adolescents 12 to 17 years of age with moderate to severe disease now. On the left, we're looking at patients who achieved a 75% improvement in the easy score. That's the eczema area and severity index, one way to capture disease activity uh, in this disease. And you can see the dupilumab in dark blue and light blue at two different dosing regimens compared to placebo, uh, far statistically superior with a really uh, early separation of these curves, so early onset of action. In the middle of the slide, you see patients who achieved that investigator global assessment score of zero or one. Again dupilumab in light blue or dark blue, placebo uh, in gray. These are lower uh, numbers, but remember, this is achieving a score of 0 to 1, and you started with moderate to severe disease. What about safety? Uh, Conjunctivitis, a risk, about 10% in clinical trials. Many of us are seeing less than that in clinical practice. And injection site reactions, which are higher than a placebo. Uh, But exacerbation of the disease of the eczema and non-herpetic skin infections actually lower in the dupilumab groups than compared to placebo. Here's the data in children 6 to 12 years of age. So we're looking here on the far left at the EZ-75 again, 75% improvement in the EZ score. You see Dupilumab at two different dosing regimens in blue, both light and dark blue, and placebo in gray. And you can see it was statistically superior. Remember that in this study, they were allowed to concomitantly use topical corticosteroids. The middle and far right of this slide show when you break this down by weight into those children less than 30 kilograms compared to those on the far right, greater than 30 kilograms. And you see, again, very similar curves, uh, but this was what separated the dosing regimen. So kids under 30 kilograms, turns out that dosing every four weeks was just as effective as every two weeks. uh, And that's why that is the dosing regimen for kids 15 to 30 kilograms, is an every four-week injection instead of every two-week injection. Adverse events at the bottom, you can see were very low in both groups. And here's the trials data presented at the uh, revolutionizing atopic dermatitis meaning in children six months to six years of age. On the far left, those who achieved an IgA score, again, of zero to one. Dupilumab in blue, placebo in gray, you can appreciate the differences there. Dupilumab far far superior statistically. And these were all dosed on an every four week regimen and they were allowed to use corticosteroids in both groups. On the far right, those that achieved that easy 75 score, again, dupilumab blue, placebo gray, dupilumab superior. So being able to use DipliMab on every four-week injection cycle with uh, low-potency corticosteroids rapidly and significantly improved atopic dermatitis signs and symptoms, and it was well-tolerated. Very favorable safety profiles. Here we're looking again at the same patient groups, six months to six years of age, same studies, but on the left, percent change in the EZ score. And on the right, This is uh, the percent change in the weekly average scores on the numerical rating score for itch, so the pruritus score. And you can see dupilumab in blue uh, on the far right and placebo in gray, and it was far superior with a really early onset of action in being able to decrease itch. And we all know that itch is such an important part of this disease that this is really important data. Moving on to topical ruxolitinib, these are the true AD1 and AD2 studies of mild to moderate disease now for this topical agent in patients down to 12 years of age and adults. You can see the first study on the left, the second study on the right. We're looking at ruxolitinib in green, two different strengths. 0.75% in light green, 1.5% in dark green. It turns out that 1.5% is what went to market. It was statistically superior. But you can see the ruxolitinib compared to placebo was superior in all these uh, parameters, the IJ of zero to one, that easy 75 score. And again, dropping in that numerical rating score for itch, at least four points or better. Safety profile was good with no new safety signals for this topical agent. Moving on to an oral JAK inhibitor, this is apatacitinib that I mentioned earlier, and this is looking at patients both 18 to 75 years of age, and then also the adolescent trial, 12 to 17 years of age. You can see apatacitinib was used at two different strengths here, 15 milligrams and 30 milligrams. They were allowed to use concomitant corticosteroids in all groups, including the placebo group. And you can see the apatacitinib in the two orange bars versus placebo in gray, it was statistically superior. The way this was approved was that you start with a 15 milligram dose. You increase to a 30 milligram dose if needed, but you try to use the lowest effective dose. And here on the curve, we're looking at the easy 75 score. In the middle, we're looking at the validated investigator's global assessment score, achieving a zero or a one. And on the far right, again, looking at a, an improvement of four points or greater on that numerical rating score for itch. It was well-tolerated overall. The most frequent treatment emergent adverse events were acne, CPK elevation, and atopic dermatitis flares. I do refer you to the box warning, though, to read up on that because as we educate patients uh, and parents of our patients about using agents like this, uh, they're going to have those questions uh, if they go home and read that package insert and that box warning. So the availability of these newer agents is really changing the way we manage uh, disease moderate to severe disease especially but even for mild to moderate disease we now have newer options that are steroid free uh, not just uh, our calcineurin inhibitors which we've had for several years and for moderate to severe disease we really have these new systemic agents both injectable biologics and oral JAK inhibitors now that are coming into the market and so in the past when we had a patient with moderate to severe disease who wasn't responding to traditional therapies, whether topical uh, or even light therapy, we were really forced then to consider uh, immune suppressing agents. Uh, now we are practicing in a different era where we have these newer options that are not immune suppressive agents and may be more effective for these patients with more
2: severe disease. When we began biologic, And, um, I would
3: say that that was introduced to me, it was right before the pandemic actually. Um, and he was starting to have new symptoms. I don't want to say they were new per se, but it was just the flare ups were different. We were at a point where they were starting to talk to us about going on, um, you know, those immune suppressant drugs. And the doctor, the dermatologist at the time was like, we cannot
2: put him on an immune suppressant drug while we're going into a pandemic. I would say within two weeks, we could see a difference. And, you know, it's pretty, it was pretty
3: clear that, you know, things were clearing up. He's, he always has had hot zones. You know, there are certain areas where I, no matter what I would throw at him, like it, it, he always, like his wrists, his elbows, his behind his knees. Those are kind of like the three zones that we always have to worry But I can tell you right now, he showed you his front of his legs. He's clear. Um, his back is clear. His most of his arm pretty much clear. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, to start this in September and kind of saying like, Hey, that I always used to cringe you know, it's like, Wait for that first frost, because when he had to that first frost, then he got clear. Well, He was getting clear before the first frost that particular year, which is great. And he's pretty much remained like I would say, you know, we've kept it at
2: least 95 percent controlled, um, which is very high for him. Well, um, before
4: I couldn't go to sleepovers and now I definitely can go to sleepovers and go to people's, people with dogs' house. And I, I couldn't when I didn't have it. So I just really like it for that reason. But also I think sometimes like I would wanna climb trees and the trees would like, like I'd start scratching so I couldn't climb the trees. But now because I don't really scratch, I can actually climb trees because that's probably one of my favorite things to do.
1: As clinicians uh, treating these patients, it's important for us to give them information. We're going to talk in a minute about shared decision making. So it's important that we share, uh, you know, in a very brief style, uh, the clinical trials data, uh, the indications for the newer agents, uh, the warnings, and the risk benefit, and really allow patients, their parents, and us together to come to a decision about what is the next most logical step for that patient. Remember that sometimes utilizing these scoring uh, scales in your clinic can really help justify these agents for insurance coverage. Um, We're gonna talk about uh, the scoring instruments in just a minute. I really uh, am in favor of the POEM score, that's the patient oriented eczema measure, P-O-E-M. I utilize that quite frequently in my practice uh, to help document that score and hopefully help with the approval process for agents like dupilumab, which I've been using a lot of. So here's a little summary of several different clinical assessment tools we can use for evaluating the severity of atopic dermatitis. I'm gonna start off by saying that most of these tools are used in the clinical research setting, uh, but more and more we've been using them in the clinical uh, setting to help us, again, hopefully justify uh, approval for the agents. So the EZ score we've talked about, that's the eczema area and severity index, the POM score I just mentioned, patient-oriented eczema measure, the PO-scorad is the patient-oriented scorad, the scorad is the scoring atopic dermatitis, the VIGA, is the Validated Investigator's Global Assessment. And more recently, people have been using something called the IGA times BSA, so that incorporates both the investigators' global assessment score and the body surface area. And you can see all these have established scores and ranges for what qualifies for mild, moderate, or severe disease. I'm gonna focus on the POEM score because it's the one I use most often. You can see three to seven is mild. 8 to 16 would classify as moderate. 17 to 24 is severe, but there's a subset 25 to 28, which classifies as very severe. The POEM score has seven questions, and patients give a response and can score from zero to four on each of those responses. So 28 is the maximum score. So what about when we use these newer agents? Um, is it a lifetime commitment? And that's a question that we get asked frequently by families, by other practitioners. And the jury is still out on that. Um, If you notice, package labels don't include endpoints for these treatments. And what I have found is that with some of these newer regimens, they are so effective and lead to such an improvement in quality of life for the patient and their family most of them don't want to come off these treatments. I usually suggest at least a one to two year trial, Uh, but as newer agents come on the market, we may find that as clinicians, we start to cycle and, and maybe try newer agents. Maybe there's less frequent dosing. In the pediatric population, that's really important. If a patient can inject a biologic every two weeks versus every four weeks, or if we had one that was every three months, wouldn't that be great if it maintained efficacy and safety. Uh, So for right now, the endpoint is not so clear. I think it's really patient-specific, clinician-specific, and it's something we have to have a conversation uh, about with our patients. Let's look at some uh, basics of team-based management, shared decision-making, and patient education. So these are several different strategies which are very effective in the management of this disease, and many of these are true for many disorders that we treat. Multidisciplinary care teams are popping up around the country. They're not available everywhere, but these are uh, units of specialists uh, that include maybe pediatricians, allergists, dermatologists, uh, nursing staff, psychotherapists, psychologists, counselors. um, And they really come together for a multidisciplinary clinic uh, experience where patients can maybe see several people at one time and be a part of other maybe support group information. Therapeutic patient education, which is at the bottom of this slide, which is a process whereby we really educate and share management tools with patients, their parents, if they're younger, kids, and really help to transfer to them the skills necessary to understand the disease and really manage it most effectively. And then shared decision-making, which can really improve health outcomes uh, by us offering individualized treatment regimens and, again, educating the families and the patients and letting them be involved in the decisions about what we're using to treat.
2: So I would say when you have a kid who has atopic
3: dermatitis, it is imperative that you set up your village. It's really the most imperative part that you find your trusted professionals, and that they're all on the same page. And so I would always say, I would always refer to my doctor's team as his trifecta. And there have been doctors who have come and gone. In the very beginning, the pediatric dermatologist, I felt that she did everything that she possibly could to help him. Um, it wasn't until we, we actually had to go and seek out um, his, his doctor's team, um, you know, within one, the children's hospital nearby
0: that we were really able,
3: I think, to get the resolve. But it, it is imperative now that, and, and, and it has been through his full treatment, that they're all talking and that they're all on the same page. We've had to leverage that village a lot you know, where if he's having a reaction or if he's having something, we have to go to the pediatrician and then they run the test on it and then it's like, okay, you have to tell his derm and then his dermatologist can then tell you what to do. It took us a little while to get to the team that we have and I'm glad that we have the team that we do. It's important. And as a parent, I feel supported um, by them all. Um, and you know, I will tell you that the dermatologist, every single time we see him, he he makes a point out of telling me and him that we're doing a good job because this is so very hard to treat and manage. And there are good days and there are bad days. Um, but as a parent, you never give up, you know, and it's just always been very um appreciative. I've been always been appreciative of the fact that he's always, you know, cognizant of like where our heads are at and making sure that, you know, we we feel supported by him, which is which is critical.
1: So it's really nice if we can coordinate with our fellow specialists. That's not always possible, but it's important that the patient have their own little village of specialists whom they need and can rely upon to educate them to follow them when they're uh, starting newer therapies or when they're using traditional uh, therapies for atopic dermatitis, and to help them when they uh, uh, encounter a barrier uh, and need some uh, modification of their treatment regimen. So I really believe in this shared decision-making model. I try to practice it with every patient encounter whenever I can. You can do it quite efficiently in the clinic setting. I realize we don't all have lots of time with every patient visit, but you can get down a few key questions uh, and really um, cover these grounds in a relatively short period of time. Remember, our patients are gonna have questions, especially in the pediatric world, the parents are gonna wanna know about safety, safety, safety. How safe is this agent? How safe is it gonna be for my child? Uh, Is it gonna be used long-term? What are the risks? What's known about clinical trials? I am honest with families. I tell them that this is a newer agent. Um, We know a lot. We feel very confident in safety overall, but we don't have long-term data. We don't have 10 or 20 years under our belt. That kind of sharing and and honesty is really important to help enable them to make the best decision for their uh, loved ones. So I'd like to summarize uh, with a few bullet points. Atopic dermatitis is a common disorder that we all manage, and it really can impose a significant burden on patients, on their families. We have to always think about the burden of disease and the impact on quality of life. Our expanded understanding of disease mechanisms, of treatment targets, and of the different phenotypes of atopic dermatitis really helps us share this with our patients and their families and helps provide us with advanced management options for treating this disease. So it's a really exciting time to be caring for patients with atopic dermatitis. For patients who remain symptomatic despite optimal topical therapy, treatment with traditional agents, remember that we have a variety of new therapies and in the pediatric world right now, we have chrysoboral, we have Dupilumab, we have topical ruxolitinib, we have oral opatocitinib, all approved uh, for children down to various ages uh, and available for our patients. Incorporating these newer therapies into our practice requires an assessment of the severity of disease in the patient. I shared with you a few of the different tools you can use to assess severity. I really realize many of you probably do a gestalt uh, rating based on the uh, types of lesions they have, the extensive involvement, and the impact on their quality of life. But really important that we start to document these disease severities with whatever tool you choose to use, and that may also help us uh, get um, the patient the medications that they need and get access to them with uh, coverage. Improving multidisciplinary care. Uh, If you have access to these multidisciplinary clinics, that's great. Utilize them. Share decision-making with our families and our patients. Uh, Therapeutic patient education. These can all really help us uh, provide the most optimal management of the disease, uh, improve the patient's response to therapy, and really help improve and hopefully maintain their adherence to a variety of uh, of treatments for the disease. I hope this was really helpful to all of you. I, again, as I said, it's an exciting time to be treating patients with atopic dermatitis. Uh, while many of us used to dread walking into a room uh, of, of a patient with mild, moderate to severe disease who was not doing well, uh, now hopefully we all have a new renewed optimism as we walk into those rooms with these newer agents we have to offer uh, and the responses that we're seeing. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: This activity was brought to you by Integrity Continuing Education, Incorporated and sponsored by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.